I thought I'd start a series. Now, when I say I thought I'd start a series, when I got around to actually working out what the series was going to be, I discovered that this is a series of two. So this is a, a, a trilogy with a bit missing. Um, I, I don't know whether you've noticed, who reads books? Because re- readers are leaders. Doesn't mean everybody who reads is a leader, but everybody who's a leader definitely reads. Um, but I've noticed something, and I think it was started by Douglas Adams when he wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And uh, he wrote three books, and they were immensely popular. And so then he wrote a fourth book, and it came out advertised as the fourth book in the trilogy. He was a bit of a comedian as well. But ever since then, have you noticed that a lot of authors, a lot of popular writing is now in series? Um, There's there's one, I'm not sure it's good, but it's popular. Game of Thrones is is a a popular series. Uh, If you're into fantasy writing, Robert Jordan wrote a series called The Wheel of Time. That was so long he died before he finished it. And so, yeah, and yes, you could, yeah, you could die before you finish reading it. Um, but I thought it, it was uh, important that we actually do something that perhaps spanned more than just one week, something that we could take in depth for, for at least, and it's obviously not that in depth. I don't think I'm going to add a third message to the trilogy, but we'll we'll see what what happens. Um, But I I wanted to follow on from something uh, I touched on in my Easter message about the the witness and the the testimony of the Apostle Paul as to the the very uh, roots of our Christian faith, the, the, the truth of the resurrection. So I thought it might be a good idea if we found out a bit more about this Paul and how his life actually impacts us. And so I've divided this into two. I'm going to talk about Paul's life this morning up until his uh, conversion experience. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, and uh, next week we'll actually talk beyond that. But of course, the Apostle Paul was originally known as Saul. And so I've titled this, this series From Saul to Paul. There's a transition going on here. And so... Who knows vaguely or a lot even about the story of the Apostle Paul and how he came to Christ? So people know something. So he was actually the early church's worst enemy. If you could bottle anti-church feeling and vitriol, Paul would have been it. But he transitioned to Paul, the church's greatest apostle. And it's one of the most powerful examples of Jesus' desire and ability to use anyone, absolutely anyone, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Who here is more than just anyone? Yeah? Are we more than... Say after me, God can use me to build his kingdom. And I believe that. You're not saying like, like, like you believe it, but... I'll, I'll let you off. Thank you. Here's one. I see that hand. So the, the, this powerful story of, of, of Paul's transformation highlights a, a huge number of things. But the things I want to concentrate on, it shows us the attitudes and the actions that we can expect from non-believers when we share our faith. 
it highlights the attitudes and actions that we as believers should have when we share our faith. It demonstrates that salvation is available to everyone and that salvation is actually an experience, not just an idea. We live in the, the age of uh, logic, head knowledge, if you like, and uh, Paul shows us through what happens to him uh, that it's not just knowledge, it's not logic, it's not um, trying to explain things in a rational sense, it's actually an experience he had. And so today I want to just discuss the first two of those points. Let's get some background on Saul himself. Uh, as a non-Christian, Saul represents the sort of person that none of us would actually ever want to meet, never mind preach the gospel to. He was from Tarsus, a prosperous city and center of education in what is now south-central Turkey. Tarsus is about 20 kilometers from the Mediterranean. He, because of his parents, inherited Roman citizenship, which apparently was widely granted through the latter, half of, latter part of the Roman Republic. He was also a citizen of Tarsus. He received training to be a rabbi in Jerusalem, um, but nobody knows exactly how early his training was or how long it was. Um, unlike his teacher, a famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, who apparently was famous, <laughs> um, he, he, uh, although it's not mentioned in the Bible, the, the fact that um, Peter and, and John were not um, executed when they were hauled up before the Sanhedrin for um, uh, preaching in the temple and healing people by casting shadows on them um, was due to, to the uh, influence of this particular rabbi who was a, a very liberal rabbi. But unlike his teacher, he became a rigorously strict Pharisee. This zealous strictness included his response to the gospel. Saul sought to destroy the newly formed church with his zealous anti-Christian attitude. Interestingly enough, he was also a tent maker. Now, tent making isn't as easy as it sounds, especially back then. Tarsus was famous for its goats, whose wool or, or hair was actually woven into a, a canvas-like fabric and made into tents, which was quite a, a skilled and work-intensive thing, much sought after. And so Paul actually, for most of his life, uh, didn't take money for, 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 from his preaching activity, but actually worked on the side as a tent maker. So if you want a tent, call Saul. That's only for the uh, Netflix viewers. So, okay, let's have a look at how we're introduced to this, this uh, imposing figure in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 54, we have this person called Stephen. And uh, we, we find out in, in verse 54 that the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. And they responded rationally by shaking their fists in fury at him, in rage even. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in a place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And so they put their hands over their ears and began shouting, la, 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 la. Very rational response. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Obviously, you can see this is a 
a rational act just happens to everybody just that let's rush on people and stone them. It's just a fun thing to do. But it says here that his accusers took off their coats, laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. How would you like to be introduced like that? Is this a man you would invite for dinner? Is this a man you would like to have a religious discussion with? Not if he had any rocks in his hand. So Stephen, just to fill you in a bit, had just un probably unwisely reminded the, the Jewish establishment that they persecuted all of the Old Testament prophets, especially those who prophesied the coming of Jesus. And he then accused them of disobeying God's law by killing Jesus. Now, notice their reaction to this. Rather than reason with him, they shook their fists at him in rage. They were incensed beyond the level of reasonable argument. Next, they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. I mean, somebody brings a discussion to you and you go, la, 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 la. No, 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 don't want to hear him. And then they grab rocks and they stone him. Then, notice it says, a great wave of persecution began that day. And this was followed by Saul going everywhere to destroy the church. How about we translate what we read here to the attitudes and actions of non-believers in the 21st century? Because who knows? We live in an age where the church is regarded differently than it was even a decade ago. So let's look at the first point. They shook their fists at him in rage. Let's translate that to 21st century talk. They accused him of hate speech so they didn't have to listen to him. They put their hands over their ears. They refused to acknowledge his right to have an opposing viewpoint. Not that that would happen today. They showed their power by making an example of Stephen by dragging him through the courts. Once they'd done that, they passed laws making the expression of a moral stance contrary to the popular view illegal. And then they persecuted Christians to stop them practicing their faith. Now, it all sounds a bit dire. And the thing is that I believe that all those things I mentioned are things that if they haven't already come to pass, they will. We are living in an age of persecution. I heard a statistic, and you know you've got to be careful with statistics, um, but this one sounded reasonable, and you can check it if you like after the service. Um, that around the world today, a Christian dies every six minutes for his faith or her faith. Now, luckily, I don't think Australia features terribly highly in those statistics. But it, it is actually a level of persecution as high 
as it was in the first days of the early church. Possibly more, because there are more people in the world today. So we're looking at a difference in in how we as a church uh, interact with our society. So what do we have to do? What are we called to do? What does the scripture tell us that our role is in all of this? Because although we, we're well aware of how the people of the world are acting, how are God's people acting and reacting to this? What actions are they taking? Come on, church, rise up. What actions are we taking? Are we taking out an injunction? Are we mounting a legal challenge? Are we participating in protest marches? Are we sharing inflammatory blogs on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter? Is that what we're called to do? Let's have a look. Let's have a look. There's a guy called Philip, and in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it tells us exactly what happened to the believers. And it says, But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy, pardon me, in that city. What sort of a deviant is this Philip character? Doesn't he know that there is something wrong in the world? Doesn't he even have an email account? Isn't he on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? Doesn't he know that the world is falling apart? Doesn't he understand that the church is being attacked? What in his response indicates that he even acknowledges Saul's actions? What is he doing? He's preaching the gospel. He's casting out evil spirits. He's healing the sick, and he's bringing joy. Perhaps there's a lesson. And that for us. Now, I'm jumping ahead here, so there's another spoiler alert. But after Paul's conversion, because he does, it's a bit like um, whoever watched the original Star Wars trilogy. You know, the Empire Strikes Back, the very end. Luke, I am your father. No! And we left thinking, good grief, the worst thing in the world has happened. This is terrible. And then we had to wait for the, the final movie, which is been redigitized about six times to change the various characters who took the parts. But, and, and so we're, we're at this point. We, we, the worst thing has happened. We've got this, this Saul character who is attacking the church. But I'm assuming that you've actually watched the rest of the movie, so I'm just going to let you know that something good does happen. And after that happens, uh, this is part of a letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church because he has come through persecution. He has been the persecutor, and now he's the persecutee, if that's the right word. And he follows on from, from what Philip says, and he talks about the attitude that he has towards the world. And I believe that this is, this is a lesson for us because it is very easy for us as Christians, for us as believers, to develop an attitude to the world which is opposite to their attitude. Our natural tendency is to fight back, 
to stand up for our rights, to actually let the world know that they're doing the wrong thing and that we're doing the right thing, to actually try and have rational arguments to convince people that their way of thinking is wrong and our way of thinking is right, to show that we're, we're not stupid. Uh, interesting, uh, we've just received the National Church Life L Survey results back and it indicated that 56% of people in this congregation have a university degree and another 36% um, have a, a diploma or higher degree. Of that sort. So we're not an un uneducated mob. We, we'd like to think that we, we know our stuff. We, we're not just blind faith, ignorant believers. And so in all of that, one of our desires, I believe, is that we want to fight back. We want to show people that our faith isn't based on, on something irrelevant, that our moral stance isn't based on hatred, that all of those things. And so our natural tendency is to show that we are not weak. 2 Corinthians 12.8, this is Paul speaking. He says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Now he's talking here about the sin and the temptation in his life. And he said, each time he said, this is Jesus, he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, the hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Who doesn't want to hear that? Who takes joy from insults and persecution and suffering? Nobody in their right mind except us. We are actually called not to fight the world, or certainly not to fight the people of the world. John 3.16 tells us that. God so loved the world. He didn't so love the church. His only son, Jesus, was crucified for our sins. That's God's way. We advance by going backwards. We become strong by becoming weak. We become wise by being fools. I can tell you're enjoying this. Who, 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 who likes to be called a fool? Get used to it. Jesus, I mean, Paul's here saying, look, we need to be foolish. We don't actually have to show people that we're strong and intelligent and clever and capable because our strength, intelligence, capabilities, whatever, will only go so far. The God we serve wants to be shown through us. It's his capabilities. It's his love. It's his strength. It's his intelligence that we need to show. Like Philip, we need to be people who are not afraid of what's going on in the world, not reacting to what is going on in the world, but to preaching the good news of the gospel. You see, I said at the beginning of this message I wanted to cover two points. The attitude and actions we can expect from non-believers and the attitude and actions that we as believers should have. The first point is actually unimportant and always has been. 
ignore it. The second point is all important, and our lives should be spent working on those actions and attitudes in the understanding that it is not our power that brings salvation, but God's power through our obedience. He loves that word, obedience. As a kid, the the four words that I hated most were do as you're told. Actually, that's really five words. Do as you are told. My father was an English teacher, so his pedantism wears off. God's power works through us through our obedience to what he has commanded us to do. He said to go into the world, make disciples of all men. Didn't say argue about your beliefs. Didn't say argue about God's kingdom versus the kingdom of the world. They're things that we face. We are all, always called to have an argument for our faith, but we need to make sure that we are not embittering people, that we're not making enemies of people, that we're not saying things which are hate speech but we need to make sure that we as believers are not confusing the truth with hate. But notice the Bible tells us to tell the truth in love. That doesn't mean yelling at somebody and saying, I'm telling you the truth in love and you should receive it in love. That's, I don't think they actually receive that. But it's to love people whether their truth differs from your truth or not. I'll finish with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 because I think this is our mantra for life. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. Who would love it if God had a secret plan and only we knew? It would be so much sexier being a Christian. We can tell God that people that God has a secret plan, and if you join our secret society and learn our secret handshake, then you can be in on this secret as well. He said, For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything. What's he forgetting? Everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Some versions say, I preach Christ. And only Christ and him crucified. We are called into this world to actually preach that gospel. The souls of the people in our sphere of influence that we are called to win to Christ are not our enemies. We are not called to oppose or argue with them in any other way apart from to preach. Christ and Christ crucified. And how do we do that? We show that there is real power in our lives that can be visibly demonstrated because of that fact. People want to see that there is a difference in us because of our faith in the risen Jesus Christ. Not because we have good arguments. Not because there's some celebrity on Facebook who has 
faith. Therefore, we point to them as, a, as an example. It must be real because he, he, I don't know who the last one was, Chris Pratt, was it? Or, or one of those stuck a huge cross up in his front yard. Um, and because he, he's in Hollywood, everybody's reposting his Facebook post because it proves that God exists. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. It just proves that he believes that. Good on him for that. I have no argument with that. But we're looking to earthly ways of showing people that God is real. Paul didn't get argued into the kingdom of God. He had an experience. Next week, we're going to talk about that experience and how we respond to that experience, how we can take courage, that we can take encouragement from what happened to Paul. It's easy to look at him as, as, a, as, a, as somebody on a pedestal, you know, the father of the early church, a magnificent man of faith, and say, well, I couldn't be like that. But I believe that Paul's example holds true for all of us. Let's stand. One of the great things about God is that he is an answerer of prayer. And while we're talking in this current season about soul winning, and just as an ad, let me point out that one of the things we do on Wednesday nights in our prayer and worship service is to actually pray for the people that we know, our families, our friends, our acquaintances for God to move in their lives, to bring them perhaps one step closer to a, an experience with Jesus Christ. But I believe that's something we should be doing all the time. And I, I, I just want you to think of someone in your life right now. Hopefully not as bad as Saul, but even if, even if they are, that one person who you would never approach that one person who is so anti the gospel that you, you don't even dare mention um, church in their presence. The person who is so vitriolic about their opposing beliefs, whether it be another religion or atheism, or which, which is another religion. I want you to think of that person. That person that you would actually be afraid to approach. That you're sitting there thinking, I hope Chris isn't going to say you need to go to that person this week and talk to them about the gospel. Yeah, so you've all got them. There's that person there that's sitting at the bottom of your heart thinking you know that God can do miracles, but this person has got to be the exception. Saul is the epitome of the... He, he was killing people for their belief. It's a bit like having a group of ISIS terrorists come in this door slaughter everybody on that half of the church, suddenly receive a conversion and begging forgiveness from this half of the church. How would you feel about that? Because I know that I would probably feel like forgiving them after I'd killed them back. <laughs> but that's not what God does. That's not how God operates. The forgiveness in our hearts has to transcend our own comfort our own lives even, for the glory of God.
So have you got that person fixed in your mind, that one that you're afraid to speak of, the one that you, you don't even want to bring up before God in case God tells you something that you have to do for, with, by that person? And I want you to let them go. I want to say, Lord, I forgive their attitude, I forgive their actions. I let go any of the hurt I feel they've brought into my life. And from this moment on, Lord, I'm going to look at them through the eyes of Jesus Christ as one of his lost sheep, as somebody loved but not yet known. Lord, I pray right now that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you bring them out of the darkness that they're in, whether they know it or not, to a place of light where they can come to know you, Lord Jesus. Whether it be through me or somebody else, my earnest desire this day is to see them saved, forgiven, preaching the gospel, walking for Jesus. even though I can't imagine it. But I know that you can do more than I can imagine. So, Lord, I pray, we pray that these people, these souls in our lives become transformed to become Paul's. followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, we believe in miracles and we are your obedient servants. In Jesus' name, amen. While you're still standing and your eyes are closed, can I just ask, you may be here this morning and you have not made that commitment to say, okay, I want Jesus to come into my life. I want to change my life around. I want to change from being Saul to Paul. I want to see what it's like to step out in faith with Jesus at my side instead of alone in this world. Or you may have already made that decision but realize that you're no longer walking on that path, that you've gone backwards instead of forwards, that your faith is in something else besides Jesus. Jesus will always invite you back. And if you're just not sure that your faith is going to take you to heaven, I want to give you that assurance this morning as well. I just want to pray a prayer if you feel that you fall into any of those three categories. I want to pray a prayer with you just to invite Jesus into your life, into your heart, to begin a walk with him as your Lord and Savior. So while every eye is closed, every head bowed, if that's you this morning, can you just raise your hand right now into the air so that I can see it and I'll pray that prayer with you to bring Jesus into your life, to start a new walk of salvation. Okay, can I get you to open your eyes? Look at me, look at me. Remember those people that you thought of. I encourage you 
step out in faith, even if it's just that you make a commitment to come here Wednesday night and pray for them again. I definitely encourage that. Have a blessed week.